0: Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. All right, in in this lesson here, we're going to take a few moments, and we are going to be looking at the account of Jacob at Jabbok. And we will find the account in Genesis chapter 32. And I want to begin by giving you just a little bit of of background to the story of Jacob and Esau, which can be found in Genesis chapter 27. So the patriarch Abraham, he had a son named Isaac. Isaac married a woman named Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah had twin boys named Esau and Jacob. Now, when they were born, Esau came out first, and Jacob came out right after him. Now, when Jacob came out of the womb, he was holding on to the heel of Esau's foot, and so Jacob was given the name Jacob, which meant heel grabber, and everything that that implied which was a lot. Now, Esau, growing up, he was a rugged boy, and he loved hunting, he loved the outdoors, and he became his father's favorite. Jacob was a quiet boy, and he preferred to stay inside with his mother, and he became his mother's favorite. Now, when they grew older, their father, Isaac, was preparing to die and he wanted to pass the patriarchal blessing onto his older son, Esau, as was the custom of the day, and it was a big deal. So he told Esau to go out and hunt some game for him and to prepare it for him the way he liked it, to bring it in, and then he was going to eat it, after which he would transfer the patriarchal blessing onto his son, Esau. Now, his wife, Rebekah, overheard her... Husband telling Esau this, and she wanted Jacob to have the blessing instead. So she devises this plan. This is an incredible dynamic. That's a window into that marital dynamic. <clears throat> As a systems theorist, I think is fascinating. So she devises a plan to deceive her husband, who by this time in his old age is blind. And so she tricks her husband Isaac into giving Jacob the patriarchal blessing instead of Esau. Now when Esau discovers that he was tricked out of his father's blessing, he was really upset. And he made a vow to kill his brother Jacob after his father died. Now Rebekah catches wind of this and she is really scared because she has confidence in her son Esau to carry this out. And So she sends her son, Jacob, to live with her brother, Laban, who is living in another country. And so Jacob lives with his uncle, and he ends up marrying his, his two daughters, and he has children with them. And he becomes a herdsman, and he begins to increase over time, over the years, in wealth and possessions. And after living with his uncle, Laban, for 20 years, God speaks to him. And he tells him, he tells him to, to return to the land of his, his fathers and his relatives. The land he fled from. And that God, God tells him he's going to be with him. And so Jacob, he, he packs up and he heads back to the land of his fathers. And as he's nearing the land, he sets up camp for the night in a dried out riverbed called Jabbok. This was a tributary, a seasonal uh, tributary to the Jordan River. Jacob knows <clears throat> that the next day he's going to be entering into the land that he fled from, and he will most likely see his brother Esau. And he's nervous. He's scared about seeing him because they didn't part on the best of terms. And so he sends some messengers ahead of him to find Esau and to let him know he's coming and to get a sense of Esau's disposition toward the idea of, of Jacob coming back into, uh, into that area having not seen him for 20 years. So, so the messengers go out. They come back and they tell uh, Jacob that they found his brother Esau and that he's coming out to meet him. And he's bringing 400 men with him. Now this is, I just kind of really take kind of delight in this whole strategy here. I think there's a lot of dynamics going on. You know, when you read, when you think in terms of the ancient world and the Old Testament world and you think about battles, sometimes you think, oh, there were tens of thousands of this and, the, you know, 100,000 Amalekites and, you know, Jebusites and all this and these big battles that they had where thousands and thousands of people were killed. Those were the real exceptions. Those were the exceptions. Those types of, those were kingdom armies, but the, the average army in the ancient world maybe had 50 people and 100 people in it. They were not huge. They didn't number in the thousands like, like we see. Those were kingdom armies. But when you've got hamlets and, and rulers and kings in different villages, when they put together an army, if there was 100 men in that army, that was, a, that was an army. And so when I see here that Esau is coming back to meet Jacob and he's got 400 men with him, that's an army. This is somebody who is, who is heading out into battle. That's the way it comes across here. And so, so you get this, this sense of, of the terror that Jacob must have felt. Jacob, he fears for his life once he gets this news. And so he divides up his family and his possessions and he sends everyone on ahead of him and Jacob is left alone in this dried out riverbed called Jabbok and there God pays Jacob a little visit. Now the word for Jabbok, it comes from a Hebrew word which means to wrestle, to wrestle. I believe if anyone is going to go through a transformation with their life, transcending the pain of their past to find healing for the wounds to their soul, then they're going to need to have to go to a place of wrestling. You're going to need to go to Jabbok. Everybody has to go to Jabbok. It's important to understand that it is God who calls us to go to Jabbok. God calls us there. In Genesis chapter 31, verse 3, it says, The Lord said to Jacob, the Lord said to him, Go back to the land of your fathers. In Genesis 32, in verse 9, as, as Jacob is fearing for his life, he prays to God and he reminds the Lord that it was he who told him to go back to the land of his fathers, knowing, knowing now that he'd have to cross the Jabbok. It's almost like a divine setup, isn't it? God calls us to go to the place of Jabbok. God calls us there. And I believe God is calling you to go to Jabbok this weekend during our time together. Now, like any experience in life, you're only going to get out of it what you put into it. It's the law of the harvest, right? You reap what you sow. You put a lot into it, you get a lot out of it. And so it will be with your experience at Jabbok. So how will you experience Jabbok when you cross it? Well, you're going to experience it the same way Jacob did. And so how did Jacob experience it? Let's take a look. I want to read to you. I'm going to read to you this account. Genesis chapter 32, and we're going to begin at verse 3. Right down through the end. Let me read it to you. Uh, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the in the uh, country of Eden. And he instructed them This is what you're to say to my master Esau. Your servant, Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, uh, men servants, maid servants, and now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. I listen to his language here. It's either very humbling or very manipulative. I tend to think it was the latter because that's the personality he had. Uh, When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, "Uh, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming out to meet you, and 400 men are with him. (laughs) Then it says, in great fear and distress. I love those descriptors. Uh, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed. I love this prayer. Maybe you might have prayed something like this. I hear the desperation in his voice. Oh God of my father Abraham. <laughs> oh, oh God of my father Isaac. O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives. I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all your kindness and faithfulness. You've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've, I've become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, as you said, God, But you've said, I will surely make you prosper, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had, he selected a gift for his brother Esau 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, uh, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. This was a sign of wealth, this was a sign of prosperity. And he put them in the care of servants, each herd by itself. And he said to the servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. This is a psychological thing he's doing here. He's, he's want, wanting to make this look really big. And he instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong and, and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you're to say, They belong to your servant Jacob, They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he's coming behind us. (laughs) He is placating this guy. He also instructs the second and the third and the others who followed with their herds. You're to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure you say... Your servant, Jacob, is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. And later, when I see him, perhaps he'll receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night at the camp. That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok after he sent them, after he sent them across the stream, He sent over all his possessions, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. But Israel, because you have struggled with God and men and have overcome, Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Penel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Penel, and he was limping because of his hip. I love that story. In this story... God outlines for us 10 processes, 10 processes that Jacob went through as he crossed his Jabbok, and we must go through them too as we confront the wounds of our soul and work toward deeper intimacy with God. In verse 21 through 22, I'm going to go over these 10 with you now. Uh, the Bible tells us that it was nighttime and Jacob wrestled until daybreak. So at nighttime, it is dark. And this is the first reality of crossing the Jabbok. Uh, the Jabbok is a dark place. All of us have a dark place. It is that side of ourselves that we keep secret from others. It could be an alternate life that we lead when we are away from the people who know us best. It could be a secret addiction or a bondage to a certain habit. It can be an evil thought life, any number of other things. All of us have a dark place. It is the internal warring that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 when he says in verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate I do. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. In verse 23 of that same chapter. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. This was the great apostle Paul who wrote. A, who was the second largest contributor to the New Testament. This is the dark place of the soul Paul had it. The great apostle Paul had it. And we have it too. It is that part of ourselves that we want to deny. We don't want to go there. We don't want to look at our pain, our shame. We resist it. We deny it. But we cannot escape it. It haunts us. It haunts us because that which is denied can never be healed. And so the first reality about Jabbok is it is a dark place. The second reality is found in verse 24. And there it says that Jacob was left alone. Jabbok is a lonely place. You go there alone. No one goes with you. It's between you and God alone. And a lonely place can be a scary place. When you are alone, there is no one there except you. Most people are uncomfortable with aloneness. And so they find, when they find themselves alone, they have to get busy doing something to distract themselves. And if they can't find something to do to distract themselves, they will retreat into their fantasy life as a way of numbing their aloneness so they don't have to feel it. Now, people often use their fantasy lives to fill their void of aloneness, to fill a wound to their soul, even if it is only temporary. That is what romance novels and pornography and tabloid newspapers and magazines and so much of our media are used for, to fill a void in, in a soul wound So Jabbok is a lonely place. The third reality about Jabbok is also found in verse 24. And it says that the man wrestled with him. Jabbok is a place of wrestling. It's a place of wrestling. It is here that you refuse to hide any longer. You refuse to hide any longer. Here you prayerfully, you prayerfully ask God to show you those parts of your life that you need to heal from. You ask him to show you your woundedness. Now, this is not an easy thing to do. We resist it with all of our physical, mental, and emotional strength. We do not want to go to this place, but let me be quick to point out to you that it was God who called Jacob to go to this place. And when Jacob entered into his time of wrestling, even though he entered into Jabbok alone, he was not alone. He was not alone. There was a man with him. now many many theologians believe that the man that Jacob wrestled with is what is called in, in theological language a theophany. Now, a theophany is a pre incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. A lot of theologians believe that Jesus appeared on several occasions in the Old Testament, but he just was not recognized as as Jesus. And many believe that this was one of those occasions. Whether it was or whether it was not, to me, is a a moot point. Uh, The fact is that heaven was present with Jacob in his struggle, and heaven will be present with you in your struggle as well. So the fourth reality now about Jabbok is a byproduct of wrestling. I don't know if you have ever wrestled, maybe in school or maybe some siblings or, (coughs) excuse me, but wrestling is exhausting. And that's the fourth reality of Jabbok. Jabbok is a place of exhaustion. It is physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting. When a person honestly goes to that place of woundedness in their own heart, within their own soul, they find themselves saying with the prophet Isaiah in chapter six, verse five, woe is me, I am undone. This is too much for me to bear. This is too hard. I can't look at this. I don't want to look at this part of myself, but you must. You must press through as exhausting as it will be. Yet it is here, At this moment, that we move into the next phase of our journey through Jabbok. In verse 25, it says that the man that Jacob wrestled with touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So that his hip was wrenched. It is here that we confront our own woundedness. This is where Jacob is wounded, right here. And this is where we confront our own woundedness. And that's the fifth reality of Jabbok. Jabbok is a place of woundedness. It is here we must must honestly confront the reality of our woundedness in all of its pain. It is here we must give voice to our pain. Giving voice to our wound is a powerful spiritual process that I believe is necessary to breaking the stronghold that wound has over our life. We need to give a voice to it. As we come before the Lord in prayer and ask him to honestly help us confront our pain, God will touch that wound. He'll point it out to us. It's not a mystery to God. He'll bring us to that place where we need to heal from, and when he does, we need to acknowledge it. Now, why is acknowledging your woundedness so important? It is important because that which is denied can never be healed. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the account of the temptation and the fall of man. And I want to read the first seven verses to you <clears throat> of Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 7. Uh, now, the the. The serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate. She also gave some to her husband who ate with her, and he, who was with her, and he ate it. then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed figs leaves together and made coverings for themselves. <clears throat> so here we see this man Adam is with Eve. What is remarkable to me when I read this account is that Eve didn't have to go looking for him. It says that she gave it to her to Adam who was who was with her. He was right there with her. Did you ever wonder like what was he doing? Yeah, what was he doing? What was he thinking? What was he thinking? He he could have said, hey, Eve, what are you doing? Don't talk to that serpent. God told us to stay away from this tree. What are we doing here? Let's get out of here. But he didn't. He didn't. And as a result, Eve disobeys, and all of humankind falls into ruin. So my question is, is the fall of man and the curse and bondage that has been brought upon all humankind, is it the result of Eve's disobedience or is it really the result of Adam's silence? I want to submit to you that I believe it is the result of Adam's silence. Adam could have stopped it, but he didn't. Adam was created first. Eve was created from Adam. Adam was the spiritual covering in that relationship. It was Adam's silence that brought about the fall of man. And it will be your silence too that brings about your fall or keeps you in bondage. This is why confession is so important. Not only confessing to God, but with someone you can trust and feel safe with. This is why it says in James chapter 5 verse 16, confess your sins to one another, pray for each other that you may be healed. Why do you do this? So that you may be healed. So God shows up in the cool of the evening and he's calling to Adam and what is God asking Adam when he calls him? Adam, where are you? Where are you? Do you really think that God did not know where Adam was? God, the the omnipresent, the all-present, the omniscient, the all-knowing God did not know where Adam was hiding in the garden? I do not think that God was asking Adam where he was geographically. I think he was asking Adam where he was now with regard to his relationship to him. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? Remember, sin is the great separator. It separates us from God, and it separates us from each other. God was giving Adam the opportunity to confess and be healed, to be restored, but Adam's pride was preventing him from confessing. Remember, the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God was giving Adam the opportunity to humble himself and to receive grace, but Adam refused. So what does Adam say to God when God gives him this opportunity to confront his failure? What does he do? He blames somebody else. Not much has changed since then, has it? It's always somebody else's fault, isn't it? We always have the answer, a reason why we can't take responsibility for the choices we have made or we continue to make. It's always somebody else's fault. We may say, well, I never chose to have this happen to me. And you may be right. There's a lot in my life that that I did not choose to have happen to me. However, you do choose how you're going to respond to those things that happened you do choose that. Whether you're going to stay stuck or whether you're going to move forward in your life, you do choose that. I have two sisters I mentioned to you last night. I had a, young, a younger sister and an older sister and, and life was very unfair to us. All of us grew up on the street and uh, my, my younger sister, um, she, she had it really tough and she, I'm, I'm, I came to faith in Christ and I mean, I've shared with my family, I've shared with my sisters, and I don't know where they are, you know, in that. I, I want to believe that my, my, my older sister knows the Lord. <clears throat> but my younger sister was so angry. Uh, she died several years ago, and I believe it was because of her anger. And I remember when my, my father died, I mentioned last night he was cremated, and, and when he was dying... Uh, he called my sisters and I. We were we were at his place there, and he he called us over to his bedside. Well, this is interesting, kind of. Well, even before that, I went down to see my my dad once. I was just just with him, and and he, he's dying, right? And he says, Mike, he says, I need you to do me. I need you to do me something. I need you to do me a favor. This is my dad. I mean, we've we've been estranged. We we didn't have you know. We when I met Jesus, I I tried to reconnect with my parents and have some kind of relationship with them, but I was only able to have the kind of relationship with my parents that they were capable of having, which was not much, right? And so now my dad's dying. He calls me over to his bedside. He said, I want you to do something. I'm thinking, my goodness, this is my dad's dying wish for for his son. I said, what is it, dad? What is it? He said, in my closet, I have a shotgun. I want you to shoot me. That's what he said to me. Yeah, I want you to shoot me. I said to him, "Now you ask me." <laughs> I said, "You asked me that when I was sixteen; there'd be no problem." <laughs> I said, "I said, but I can't do that now." <laughs> so, no, I can't do that now. And so, uh, so, but, then, but then there was there was a time when my sisters and I were there, and he calls us over to his bedside. I'm thinking, "Oh, great." <laughs> so he says, "When I die." I want you to cremate me, and I want you to take my ashes, and I want you to throw them in the, into the ocean over by McCook's Point. I don't know if you know where McCook's is, down in Niantic, Connecticut. It's a, it's a little beach there. He used to go there as a park, and he'd sit there and just stare out at the water, and he says, I want you to throw my ashes in the water there, and I said, okay, we'll do that. We'll do that, right? <clears throat> so he dies, and uh, I, I forget, it was in the summer, I think, and, and we get his ashes, and and they put them in a box, right, and I put them in my closet, and, and time's going by, and, and we haven't done this, now it's the end of November, right, my sisters did not want to do this, I'd say, come on, we got to do this, I don't want to do that, I want to do I'm kind of freaked out by that, so I, I call them up, the end of November, I said, look, I can hear dad calling me from the closet, we have got to go, we've got to go do this thing, and so, so they come up, and we go out to the shore, and it's, it's this time of year, well, it's cold, it's winter, and so the water's clear, you know, it's cold, so there's no allergies. It's crystal clear. And so we go down onto the rocky shore there, and I and I take this bag of ashes out. Now, i have never seen human ashes before. And so I'm just looking at it, and I'm, I can kind of be a little metaphysical at times. And and so I reach into this bag of, of ashes with my hand, and I pull out my father's ashes. And there's little fragments of bone and just his ashes, and is sifting through my fingers back into the bag, and I, I scoop them out again, and I'm lifting, and I'm looking at them. I've never seen human ashes before, and, and they're sifting through. My sister's are bug-eyed looking at me like, what are you doing, Mike? And, but I was just, and I, and I looked at my sisters. This is before my sister died. My younger sister died, and I looked at them. I said, girls, I said, do you see this here? And I'd scoop it up, and ashes coming down. And I said, this, this represents not only dad's life, This is his lifetime, his lifetime, 80-something years is right here. Every hard day's work my father ever did, every foul word he ever uttered, every beating he ever gave us, every moment of passion he ever experienced, every tear he ever cried, it's all here. And then I said to my sisters, what makes this worth it. What makes this worth it? I said to them, it is not worth holding on to your anger. It's not worth holding on to unforgiveness. It's not worth it. And then we, we shook the bag right in the water and, and I saw this big cloud, this big cloud of gray ashes the, and the water would lap in and kind of scoop the ashes and take them out further and the cloud's getting bigger and bigger and really gray and then all of a sudden it starts thinning out and thinning out and thinning out and it was just a matter of a few minutes. Crystal clear. You'd never known it was there. And I just heard those words from the scriptures. Life is a vapor. I thought, I just saw. I just saw a whole lifetime vaporize. And it's like, wow. And I purpose in my heart come what may, I am not going to hold on to those things that are toxins to my soul. I am not going to hold on. Listen, people have done me wrong. If you think of it, it's happened. And and I am not going to hold on to that. I'm not going to let the devil get the victory in my life. I'm going to let God use my life. God will redeem your life if you give it to him. If you give him that pain, he will not waste your suffering. I don't know where that came from, but that's just a little. (laughs) It is powerful. I think about it often. <clears throat> and you know, as that, that water was lapping in, I, I picked up a little rock like this, about this big. I told my sisters, pick up a rock that represents your life. And so they each picked up a little rock. I picked up a little rock. And and I put it in my shop, my little pottery shop in my house, and I put it there on my counter. I got a little fountain and I put the rocks on it. That's the only monument I have to my father. There's no evidence of him on the earth, you know, other than it's me, you know. Yes. You know, it's a choice. It's a choice, because I made different choices than my sister. And I shared my heart out with my sister. And I don't know where she's at with the Lord, but I know I've done my job. I did my part. So we do choose how we respond. So it is your silence about your pain, about, about the way life has wounded you, about the bad choices you've made, about the wound in your soul, in your heart, that keeps you from moving forward with your life. You remember from the pottery illustration, the unproductive ways that we experience life, they're really a result of the wounds in our life that we've never healed from. If you don't heal from your wounds, you organize your life around them, and then you end up recreating them. Remember, we learned that last night. You organize your life around them, and you're going to end up recreating them. So breaking the silence about these wounds is the first part in healing from them. So why do you need to break the silence? I've said it. This is just a refrain. Get this in your, in your head, because that which is denied can never be healed. You will never be able to heal from something you refuse to accept, that you deny. And we'll talk about that in two more more classes from now. Okay, so the fifth reality about Jabbok is that Jabbok is a place of woundedness. Then in verse 26, the man that Jacob was wrestling with said to him, let me go. But Jacob would not let him go until he blessed him. Jacob's tenacity is a reflection of his desperation. And it is. And this is the sixth reality of Jabbok. Uh, can we move to the next slide. There it is. Thank you. Jabbok is a place of desperation. Uh, when we are in a desperate situation, we do one of two things. We will either give up or we will fight. That's what we do. We, f- we flee or we fight. Let, remind, let me remind you uh, that we're in a war. Second Corinthians 10.3 tells us we're in a spiritual war fighting an unseen enemy and we fight with spiritual weapons. I'm going to talk to you about those in our, that in our last lesson. So when you go to Jabbok, I want to encourage you to fight. I want to encourage you to be desperate for your healing. I want you to be desperate to hear from God. I want you to be desperate to break the stronghold this is, has had on your life and is holding you back from going to the next level with God. Jabbok is a place of desperation. The seventh place Uh, We enter into Jabbok, as found in verse 27. And here, the man who wrestled with Jacob asks him his name. This is really powerful. Genesis 25, verses 24 and 26, uh, we have the story of Jacob's name. Remember, his name was Heel Grabber, right? It it also meant cheat. It meant swindler. It meant liar. It meant someone who could not be trusted. And that was very much an accurate uh, representation of who Jacob was. And and the seventh passage is when we confront the reality of who we are. It is here that we answer the question, what is my name? This is a powerful moment. It's here we say, my name is liar. My name is cheat. My name is deceiver. My name is addict. My name is gossiper, lustful person, adulterer, angry person, unforgiving person. You put whatever it is you are in there. But there is where you own your name. It is here that you wrestle with God and you wrestle with yourself. You wrestle with owning your story. You have to own your story. You confront the reality of your woundedness and how this has been sabotaging your life. This is a place of honesty, humility, and brokenness. It's important to remember that this inventory that you you do of yourself, it is not going to reveal anything. Anything about you that God does not already know. Think about that. That's very freeing. The reality of your story, the reality of who you are, all those things you don't want to accept, it's not going to reveal anything about you that God doesn't already know. In verse 27, when the man asked Jacob what his name was, Jacob answered and said, when he said Jacob, his entire life story was wrapped up in that name. But what is powerful here, if you'll notice, it wasn't until Jacob was willing to own his name that God was then free to change his name. This is powerful. This is a moment of transformation. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Right here he changes it. Jacob owned his story. He owned his name. The angel says, your name is no longer going to be Jacob. It's going to be Israel because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Isn't it interesting that, that that this angel says to Jacob, you've struggled with God and with men and yet there was no one there. There were no men there. So why did he say that? He said that because he knew Jacob had wrestled with men his entire life. This was, he, his life was one of conflict and mistrust. Now, when you do not own your pain, you have to live from the place called the false self. We learned that in the last lesson. And the false self will always be at odds with the rest of the world. And this was Jacob's life. This was his life. And so the seventh passage through Jabbok is where we confront the reality of who we are and we own our name. Then what happens? Verse 28 tells us Jacob's name is changed. It's changed from one who supplants to one who overcomes. It's beautiful. Jacob is transformed from a deceiver, a supplanter, to an overcomer. And this is the next passage through Jabbok. Number eight, the eighth place takes, Jabbok takes us to is a place of transformation and overcoming. It's a place of transformation and overcoming. We are transformed Because we have brought a stronghold into the light. We've exposed our wound, our shame, our failure. And when we do this, God is able to release us from the control that that wound has had on our life and to fill that wound with the healing balm of his love and forgiveness. We experience God in a way that we have never experienced him before. It's that subjective, personal knowing that we talked about in the last class. We reveal to God our ugliness, our pain, and God looks at us through the lens of the cross. And we come to understand something about the love of God that we never understood before. And this understanding changes us. It transforms us. It truly is a spiritual work. And this leads us to the next passage through Jabek, and that's number nine. Jabbok is a place of renewed vis- vision. Renewed vision. Verse 30 says, so Jacob called the place Penel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. I saw God. You know, when, it, it, the very, when, when God started the ministry with a journey to the potter's house for me, I was teaching at the graduate level, and, and I was doing this class exercise, and then I would, I was, I was learning pottery. I just was really learning it starting off, and, and I used to come home, and I would sit at my wheel and make pottery, and it was therapeutic for me. It was like, you know, it was like art, like therapy. And I remember sitting at the wheel, the very one I was sitting at last night, and thinking of the order of operations, all the order of operations you have to go through to create something, and how you can't skip a step. You can't go step one to four. If you do not do step three, step four will never happen. And as I was thinking about that, the Holy Spirit just got a hold of me and just kind of spoke to me and said, Mike, you understand this as it relates to fashioning clay, but don't you realize this is exactly what I'm doing with your life? As I'm fashioning your life into the plans that I have for you. And all of a sudden, God just brought me through like a life review. Like I just saw my whole life from when I was a little kid, growing up through the streets and with this functional family, the streets, the the whole thing, and showing me the ways that I hurt people and the ways that other people hurt me. And God said, Mike, if you give this to me, but not just in word, where people will say, oh, Jesus, take my broken life, but then they don't let Jesus do anything with it. He said, you give me all of this. And I've been walking with the Lord for a long time at this point. You give it to me. You be transparent with your life, be willing to tell your story, and I'm going to do with your life. If you'll do that, I'll do with your life the same thing I did with Joseph, Jacob's son, I'll use it for the saving of many lives. But now in a spiritual sense. And when I got that revelation, I said, okay, God, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you all of my pain, all of my guilt, all of my shame. I'm going to give it all to you. And then I said, just don't hurt me with it. Just don't hurt me with it. You see, I didn't want to have to go back and look at that stuff. I didn't want God dragging that stuff. I didn't know what God was going to do it. It was scary. I needed courage. I needed courage to take that step and say, yes, but God doesn't do that. God doesn't the Bible says love covers. Love covers. God isn't going to drag that mess out. The devil will try it, but God isn't going to do it. And when I, I, I said, I'm going to give it to you, just don't hurt me with it, I broke down and I sobbed like a baby. I sat at my wheel, and I heaved, and I sobbed, and I wept, and I wept, and I wept till I had no strength left in me. And when I was done, I felt like Jacob at Pinnell. That's exactly what I thought. I felt like I have just met God face-to-face, and I have lived. I have lived. And then I thought, I've got to show this to everybody. That's what I said. And I brought it into my class. I brought my wheel because my class was all about spiritual formation and God using our brokenness and that whole thing. And I brought it into my class. And these classes are three hours and 15 minutes long, one sitting. So it's, uh, I got you for a while. And, uh, and, and I set up my wheel in my class. My students are coming in. I had about 25 adult students. This is a representative sample of my class. And, and I said, look, class, forget the syllabus. God showed this to me about my broken life. Now I'm going to show it to you about yours. And I didn't know what I was going to say or do. I just started making pottery, and I'm just making pottery, and I'm talking. I'd say, okay, Doug, remember that thing you shared with the class that happened to you? Can you see how God used that to to shape your life, and now you're pursuing a degree as a counselor? Oh, Glenn, remember that thing that you shared with the class that happened to you? Can you see how God used that? The Holy Spirit showed up in that class. The place was a wreck. It was a wreck. People sobbing at their desks. I'm not talking like this. I'm talking shaking, heaving, just making noise, wailing. It was unbelievable. Oh, the poor receptionist. Uh, Yeah, during the break. So later that week, I get a call. Is this Dr. Ferris? I said, yes, it is. This man, kind of aggressive in his voice. My wife, Susan, is in your class. (laughs) I said, yes, I know Susan. a girl about 50 years old, good student. She came home from your class the other day really shaken up. And she hasn't been the same. I'm thinking, oh, Lord, this guy's going to go up one side of me and down the other. And now he's going to tear me up. And so I start praying, Jesus, give me a soft answer to turn away this man's wrath. Like apples of gold and settings of silver, give me an ap- upward, you know, praying all of, these, all of these scriptures to turn his heart. And, and then it's, he's quiet for the longest time. I thought I lost that signal. I'm looking. And, and then he comes back on and his voice had softened. And he said, well, I never knew this. He goes, my wife and I pastor a church in the southern part of our state. He goes, would you come to our state and do this very same thing for our people? I said, okay. <laughs> I'm so scared. I said, yeah. God's opening up an opportunity. I went. I didn't know what I was going to say or do. But you don't have to. But you have to be willing. You have to have courage. Everybody wants to walk on the water. Nobody wants to get out of the boat. you got to have courage. And so I went, and God used it in just this incredible way. A week later, I got another call. You come to Arch? another call. That was, that was 13 years ago. And now, I've just given my life to this full time. This is all I do. I left everything behind, and I want to take this around. The DVD out there is in 20 countries now. Millions of people have seen it. Thousands have come to faith in Christ. And I'm not saying this to lift me up. I'm saying this because because this is God using my brokenness. And I know that God has a journey to the potter's house story for every one of your lives. The question is, will you tell it? Will you tell it? Will you allow God to use your story, your pain, your brokenness, to share with other broken people? Because everybody is broken. And the message of a journey to the potter's house is not so profound, it's simple. But everybody relates to it, because everybody knows pain. And they will relate to your story, but the question is, will you tell it? So that's your challenge. Okay, when you come through Jabbok, The cry of your heart is just like that. I saw God face to face, and I've lived. So we come to understand God as one whose grace is abundant, whose love is transcendent. This understanding helps us to walk more humbly. Now, even though intellectually we say we believe that God loves us unconditionally, emotionally we don't really believe that. We understand God's love as being similar to the way we love And so we impose on God's love the same we impose on on the love we give to and receive from others. We are afraid to be completely honest with God. Because we're afraid if God really knew us, if he really knew our darkest secret, he wouldn't love us, much less want to bless us. When you come through Jabbok... Wrestle through that dark place. You understand that. God knows about your dark place. He accepts you as you are, yet he loves you too much to leave you there. And you're going to come to your senses, and like the prodigal, you're going to come running into the Father's arms, and you're going to understand the love of God differently. It will not only change your vision of God, it also changes your vision of how you see yourself and how you see life and you'll understand that your life in all of its pain with all of its failure with all of its brokenness it has a broader purpose in God's plan if you will let it be a part of that plan. You will understand the truth of Genesis 50:20 the one that I got is that God what was intended to harm you God can now use for the saving of many lives. So this ninth phase is uh, is, is a place of renewed vision and permanent change. The 10th and final phase at Jabec is Jabec is a place of new beginnings. And permanent change. I love this. In verse 31, it says, The sun rose above him as he passed Pinnell, and he was limping because of his hip. It says, It rose above him as he passes Pinnell. He's passing it now. That means it's behind him. He passed it. It was over. It is a new start. The sun rose above him. It's the dawning of a new day. It's a new beginning. Wouldn't you like to have a chance to start over again? Wouldn't you like to have a chance to have a new beginning? Well, you can. You can have it. But you've got to go to Jabbok to get it. In this last part of the verse, it says that he was limping because of his hip. He didn't leave his wound there. He transcended it. You can't undo your past, but you can transcend your past. You can learn to live free of the negative influence of your, of your past. If we move, if we fast forward now in Genesis to chapter 47, in verse 31, here we see Jacob now, this same Jacob, who was wrestling at Jabbok. He is now reunited with his son Joseph. He's been living in, in Egypt for some time now. And now Jacob is an old man, and he is preparing to die. And he asks his son Joseph, to take his bones, don't bury him in Egypt, but to take them and to bury them with his fathers. And when, once he gets Joseph to agree to do this, it says in verse 31 that Israel, that's his name now, Israel, which meant peace, peace with God, Israel, it says he worshipped as he leaned on his staff. Now many theologians believe that the reason he had a staff to lean on was because of his hip that was put out at Jabbok. That he carried that wound with him the rest of his life. That staff symbolizes that Jacob is no longer leaning on his own strength. He's leaning on the strength of God. <clears throat> Isn't this a beautiful picture? It is my prayer for you. That as you go through Jacob, you too will learn to lean less on your own strength and more on the strength and intimacy with God. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.